This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I'm super excited about today's episode because we have Ryan Lalonde, President, and Cameron McNeil, Executive Director, both from MLA Canada, both partners at MLA Canada, and uh, past guests. You know what? Past guests, fan favorites for sure. The best part about having these guys back is I feel like we've now spent a month or two thinking, talking, discussing the resale market and what we're going through right now and how long this lasts and what this actually is and what causes it. But we haven't really looked at the presale market. Sure. So the relationship between the resale presale market, these guys are the guys to talk to and the presale market more generally, what's going on in that market in Metro Vancouver and beyond. This is a great conversation. Yeah. And we do definitely, for people that are not interested in pre-sale, there's a lot of overlap in this conversation, right? Because we definitely talk about the resale market, the way that the two markets are connected. And uh, of course, every time we have Ryan and Cameron on, we get their market predictions. We ask them where the opportunities are. And these guys never disappoint. Well, they never disappoint because they are literally talking with the builders developers in Metro... Vancouver, day in, day out, they're selling that product. They have to know exactly what's going on and where we're headed from here. Such smart guys. So yeah, they, you know, it's, it feels like they're putting their neck out, but I think they're just doing what they do. Right. Yeah. This is just a run of the mill conversation that these guys have every day. (laughs) Exactly. And we're lucky enough to have hit record. So stay tuned for that, Ryan and Cameron. Great conversation. Super excited to get to that. I just, before we, uh, we get to that interview with Ryan and Cameron, a little bit of feedback from last week's episode, Vancouver Hates Children. Right. Jens Uh, von Bergman. Yeah. We actually had a, a lot of people reach out and a lot of feedback. Just, I think the title was maybe a bit jarring. Provocative. Provocative. Would you say provocative? Yeah. You came up with that one. <laughs> I, uh, I think we, we were... Uh, it, was a, it was a joint joint effort, I think. Yeah. It was between that and uh, Mayor Stewart Hates Children, yeah. which I, I, we, we nixed that one. Concerned about liability. Um, but no, Vancouver Hates Children is what we came up with. And I think it was a great conversation overall. This is from a listener who wrote a very lengthy email that kind of had really solid argument, a little bit going against what Jens was talking about, but just talking about how the issue is even more complicated than, uh, than adding housing, right? Right. So this is a, I, I just took this, this is a generally an excerpt that I'm paraphrasing here, but the reason that there are fewer children in Vancouver is not always just because of exclusionary zoning. It also has to do with poor planning, filling quotas for certain types of housing and ignoring community feedback. And this is related to mostly, I think, areas where there are children and and why people are leaving. Well, and I think, you know, I can think of a couple of neighborhoods where where residents are up in arm. I think this resident was specifically talking about 
some SRO housing at Arbutus and the placement of SRO right. housing. Yes. So over on the west side, I know people in Yale Town. There's there's always talk about leaving downtown for for various policy decisions. So yeah, some definitely some good feedback, and uh, I think that hopefully will spark some conversations because the numbers are irrefutable, and and Jens unpacks what's going on in Vancouver. And, you know, we got to make some changes. Yeah. Fantastic conversation last week. If you haven't listened to uh, Vancouver Hates Children, go back and check that out because it's a fantastic episode. Also, Matt, next week, a little bit of house cleaning. We have Zonda, Michael Ferreira, and John Benest, who have been on the show before. Yeah. And they are fantastic. They're coming back. My favorite John Bonet story is don't get it confused with John Bonet, but I can imagine that happens a lot. But anyways, right, but you know what? The funny thing is, is no one. Will, I feel like if he says that though, no one will ever make that mistake again. Like well, is it John yeah. Bonet? It's yeah. a really good. It's a, it's a really a, good way to make sure people get your name right. Exactly. But you wanted to bring up a report about rentals. Well, no, you know what? Michael Ferreira and John Benest have been on a number of times and just more data, right? And right. It, the nice thing is, is Zonda, like we subscribe to their, their newsletter. We just got one about rental rates that have been surging in Metro Vancouver. I think, unfortunately, it's almost like the last couple of months we've seen huge increases. This is specifically about the purpose-built rental market, and they are putting out this data for developer clients for sure. But Adam, I'm just wondering, if I said to you six sub-markets, okay, yeah. you can say downtown, but then it's Vancouver West, Vancouver East, North Shore, Tri-Cities, Ridge, Meadows, you know, right. all these all these areas. Top six in terms of highest rent. Top six in terms of highest rent. And I'm going to, I'll preface there's this by three, saying- There's three areas in Vancouver. Well, okay. So uh, I'm going to preface this by saying that I used to be able to to predict rents like in any sub market, almost any type of property. Almost to the dollar. Almost to the dollar. This really. is on price per square foot. And now I'm feeling a little bit lost right now because rents have jumped so quickly that I am underestimating what the rents are. And yeah. I, I've done this now with like one beds and two beds. And people are like, are you serious? I thought it would be higher. And I check with a property manager that we work closely with and I'm off often by like, you know, significant $600, (laughs) which is like crazy because I've never had that issue. On the North shore, I was off by a couple grand. (laughs) Really? No, it's just joking. But but the rents are very (laughs) high in certain areas. Well, okay. Top six. Top six. And are these down by sub market? This is, okay. So there's, how we're doing. Then are we going? We're we're going like Richmond Delta's together. Burnaby New West is together. North Shore's lumped together. But then downtown Vancouver specific. Then they got the West side, the East side. Okay. White Rock, Surrey, Squamish. Top six. Top six. Highest rents in Metro Vancouver. All right. In no particular order, I'm going to go. East Vancouver, downtown, Surrey, North Shore, and uh, let's see here. Oh, man. Am I going to say the west side? I guess I'll guess I'll say the west side, too. That's strange. So that's only five of six. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm missing one. You are. Remind me of the breakdown of these again. And it Okay, trigger. I'm just going to read these off. Okay. Abbotsford, Abbotsford, Langley, Ridge Meadows, Tri-Cities, White Rock, Surrey. Squamish, North Shore, Burnaby New West, Richmond Delta, Vancouver East, Vancouver West. I'm gonna downtown. I'm gonna do I'm gonna do Burnaby New West as my final. You know what? Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. You got it all right. 
Really? You got it all right. Oh, okay. So it's downtown Vancouver comes in top, almost $5 oh. a, a square foot. Wow. For rent. Okay, because so we used to quote $3 a foot. $3 a foot. Uh, yeah, this is, keep in mind, this is, it, it's unclear. This is geared towards developers that are putting out new products. So presumably newer purpose-built rental. $5 a foot downtown. Vancouver West is actually second. I was surprised that you almost didn't say Wow, well, you West. know what? I I was thinking about averages, and sometimes the West Side pockets of the West Side is not you know you, you get, get like deals. a crazy house for like three grand or yeah. whatever, right? So so it's four dollars is the average in Vancouver West, so almost a dollar cheaper. Vancouver East, it looks like about, and this is a graph three sixty, three dollars sixty, three dollars seventy a foot. Okay. What I was North Shore is right around the same as Vancouver. I would have figured East Van would have shot up recently. Yeah. And I, you know, but Vancouver East is actually right in line with the North Shore and Burnaby New West is only slightly lower. That's crazy. Which New West rents are almost the same as, as East Van. That's You get the nuts. same rents as the, as the North Shore on the East side. And here's the other thing. Thinking that Surrey, East Van would be this higher. Is the, this is the, the big one. Surrey comes in, clocks in about $3.30 a foot. Okay. Which seems to me quite high. It beats out the Tri-Cities. It beats out White Rock, like like dramatically. It beats out Richmond. Like wow. the rents in Surrey. Uh, that's, has, that's, that's not, you know, I mean, I, I, I've heard, I've, anecdotally, that makes sense though, because people are getting crazy rents in Surrey. Yeah. Uh, and it's not even an anecdote anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> we got it. And, reported. It's and you know what? We'll talk more about this with uh, John Benest and Michael Ferrer next week. But that's I can't just a wait. little bit of a teaser. I can't wait because these guys, they always have, these guys are, really, really deep in the data, but um, they, they have also, a great way of summarizing it and making it accessible. The, right? the other exciting thing about these guys is Zonda now is very deep in Alberta. So I'm kind of keen to to hear what's going on there. Well, if there's not enough talk about the Alberta markets just everywhere, I know. Uh, expect more here. We're going to unpack Alberta a little bit with those guys as well. Absolutely. It's 10 minutes. We're 10 minutes in. We've got to get to this I conversation. Know. This is everybody's like, cut to Cameron and Ryan already. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, <laughs> you bozos. Without further ado, uh, let's talk to Cameron McNeil and Ryan Lalonde from MLA Canada. Enjoy. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at marcon.ca slash sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at marcon.ca or follow them at Instagram at marconhomes. Marcon, building for life.
Okay, so we're here with Cameron McNeil, partner, and Ryan Lalonde, partner at MLA Canada. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. Thanks for having us on the show. Fantastic. Again, thank you. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for taking the time, guys. And uh, both of you are past guest fan favorites, so it's good to have you back. But for people who maybe missed the last time you were on, can we start by hearing a little bit about yourselves? Yeah, happy to. You know, maybe I'll kick off first. So Ryan Lalonde. Is it weird that I introduced myself? <laughs> <laughs> it feels weird. Twice. <laughs> All right, yeah. Ryan Lalonde. Brand recognition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How many times can I say it? Uh, so president uh, of MLA Canada. I work really closely with Cameron. And for the most part, Cameron and I are responsible for overseeing all of the work and the scope of services that we offer on, you know, multifamily residential projects throughout British Columbia. We spend the majority of our time focusing on that geography. We're active in both Greater Vancouver, Fraser Valley, uh, through our Fraser Valley office and and, uh, and newly activating in uh, secondary markets outside of, of those two, uh, which we're really excited about. Did I miss anything there, Cam? No, I don't think so. I'll just add maybe a little quick history. We came together uh, six years ago, knew each other, and uh, we've been in this space for a long time. This is uh, 30 years for myself doing project marketing, and uh, that's the catch-all phrase for what Ryan was describing, what we do, and that's uh, really exciting to be close to the development industry. And uh, today, I think we're going to be stepping into looking at some some of the cycles and and the different forces and variables at work. And we've we've witnessed and been part of that for a long time. Yeah, I think you know just to highlight like where we spend the majority of our time is is attempting to add value across every aspect of the development life cycle. So we work with Canada, some of most Canada's uh, premier uh, development partners, and and again, a lot of activity in British Columbia. Uh, we also have advisory services, uh, and that sets us up well for conversations like we're about to step into, uh, which has a national perspective. And, and I would say that our uh, that side of our business is active in almost every province across the country. Well, it, it is it is interesting. I think for anyone listening that is is thinking it sounds complicated, they'll recognize MLA from from basically marketing pre construction condos, townhomes. Right. That's that's where I think most people will know you. So it's interesting because you you were on. I don't know exactly when, but when was that? It was, it's it was, become kind of a, a quarterly check in, I think. Yeah. And it might have been kind of like closer to six months ago, but the market was was on it, obviously on a tear. Right. Uh, we talked about pre-construction and the optimism and, and how, you know, that kind of belief in, in the future, the real estate market drives a lot of people towards pre-construction. Feels like we're in a different moment. <laughs> can we can we maybe hear from? I'm interested to hear from both of you. How is the the presale market right now? Cam, you want to take this off? Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. I think it was about six months ago when we last spoke, and all the all the forces and variables that typically impact our market seem to be going all in the upward direction, and um, and of course that created a really uh, uh, frothy market, frothy time. With one exception, we had very, very low supply, um, as you guys uh, know from uh, the resale world, but also in the, in the pre-sale world, we just simply couldn't keep up with the demand. And, and of course, that creates upward forces. And, um, and today, we're looking at a lot more of those variables that, have, that, are, that are shifting. And uh, you know, those are the same variables and fundamentals that, that often drive our market, but many of those things are shifting. So we do see some potential dark clouds on the horizon. It's hard to know exactly how, they, how they're going to show up. Uh, we have some some things to to share in more detail today, but sort of as a as a broad context, you know, we're of course seeing the the, the Fed hikes, the uh, inflationary forces, you know, the ban on uh, foreign purchasers, um, political uh, geopolitical issues, uh, including Ukraine, of course, 
Uh, stock market is down today. It's down 28%. It was down uh, yesterday too. Yeah. Well, 28% <laughs> since it's yeah. high, not yeah. one day, I should say. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's half its value. We got uh, Johnny Depp and Will Smith, uh, um, you know, pretty, pretty negative things out there. And, uh, and so I really, uh, I really feel, or we feel that, that, you know, that that's starting to create a little bit of headwind for our market, but uh, it doesn't take away from the very, very strong, strong fundamentals that we're faced with long-term. How connected are the, like, because one thing that we've watched over the past, call it two years or so, even, well, longer, is often pre-sale is busy when the resale market is soft and, and or, or more balanced and, and vice versa. Are the two markets connected right now? Because one thing that you think of is right now, a lot of, a lot of in, the, in the resale market is people are looking at payments, they're looking at rates today. Obviously, if you're buying a pre-sale, you're looking potentially 18 months to, you know, four years out, five years out. Are the are are you feel do you feel like these two markets are really connected right now? I think it's a good question. You know, I think just to be to be really clear, when when you think about our advisory services, we pay very close attention to both the resale market and the pre-sale market, and we track those not only in the Lower Mainland, but we pay very close attention all throughout British Columbia. And and the reason why is because you know what COVID has created is a significant shifts in demand, right? Demographic shifts that are creating significant more demand for some of the secondary markets. And that has a huge impact on, on the supply of buyers into existing markets like Fraser Valley and, and uh, Greater Vancouver. Now, I think traditionally, um, you're right, they've ebbed and flowed at different times. What's really unique, I think, for the moment of time that we have right now is that the resale market has been on fire, right? In the Fraser Valley, it's been on fire for nearly 36 months. Mm-hmm. In Metro Vancouver, about 24. Through those times, we've seen rapid price appreciation. If you and this will, this will be tough to, to demonstrate through a microphone, but if you take a look at some of the price appreciation graphs over the last 30 years, from 2017 to the run-up of 2019, 2020, it was, it was fairly aggressive. If you chart what 2020, the end, uh, all the way up until today, it is one of the most aggressive price escalations that we've seen in the marketplace as far back as we're tracking. And I think right now we have a lot of headwinds that Cam was touching on. I'm going to Challenge on Johnny Depp a little bit. I think that he's actually going to get us through these times. <laughs> oh, he's but, he's going to be fine, but it's, it's just a negative <laughs> thing that's heavy yeah. with us. Yeah, um, but you know what? We're, what we've seen is so much demand for inventory for people that put off life changing moments, right? Whether that's upsizing or downsizing in 2019 and 2020, many of them sat on the sidelines as COVID set in. Some of them were frozen for different reasons, and they came back to life at the mid part of 2020. And really, we've seen incredible buyer demand since that point up until recently. And I think that that run-up has caused a lot to lose, right, in terms of missing out on multiple offers that were so rampant through that marketplace, just access to inventory. You can go back to the 80s and you can read headlines that talk about a lack of supply, right? Long timelines, difficult to find land, difficult to make sense of it, challenging economic and uh, geopolitical circumstances that have created a massive lack of supply in the market today. And so as resale was running and a lack of inventory is present, I think many home buyers were shifting their perspective into pre-sale, right? And if you miss out on a townhome three times or four times in resale through multiple offers, maybe that's why you chose Burke Mountain, right? In the last six months, because there was inventory there to absorb. Right. And that's really put a lot of upward pressure on pre-sale. And so today I think that they've been very closely linked, but you're right. I think that as interest rates change, I think that we're seeing a pullback in resale. For the most part, you guys paid very close attention to the marketplace. You know, we've seen a pullback on sales anywhere from 25 to 35%, depending on where you're looking in, in certain markets, and an increase in listings of anywhere from like 10 to 
And our expectation is that that softening is going to continue to occur. And that's probably going to have some impact on demand for pre-sale in the short-term future. So if I understand correctly, just the, the last part there, we're seeing increasing supply right now in the resale market, slowing demand. And that's that's what you're seeing in the pre-sale market as well. To a degree, yeah. We are paying really close attention to, to some of the conversion rates. Uh, so we track lead origination and we track lead conversion very closely within the organization. So paying close attention to how many registrations are happening at any one moment, how many are making a visit into one of our home stores, and then how many of them would convert into a transaction. And so as we pay really close attention to those numbers, what we're noticing is that those numbers have absolutely fallen off over the last 30 days. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's nearly as dark as what the headlines are reading. Sure. Or what the anxiety is that many are feeling in the boardroom. Uh, They're actually quite subtle in terms of shifting, but there is a perspective that that's happening. And with that, you know, rescission rates have increased slightly. Uh, I think that many home builders are looking at and trying to evaluate timing of market a little bit more closely. I think ultimately the, the general theme over the next six months is that it's going to take more to probably do a little bit less in sales and that every moment, like they have to be thoughtful, right? You have to really lean into the customer. You'll have to lean into our home buyers and really try to understand, you know, what is the value that needs to be delivered by the homes that we're responsible for bringing to market? And then how do we create an, just an incredible home buying experience around that to really shine? Because mm-hmm. one thing, one thing just, thinking out loud here about the pre-construction market, like we're talking about headwinds, there's uncertainty right now exists, right? Like we think back to say like September, October of 2021, rock bottom interest rates, you know, the market's ripping. People who bought pre-construction then out two years are maybe thinking, oh man, I might be dealing with a four and a half percent five-year fixed or who knows, maybe even higher, Right. But there felt like there was a lot more certainty then, whereas right now it feels like, okay, the writing's on the wall, all the things, Cameron, you mentioned, there's a lot of uncertainty. Like, how are we thinking about pulling the trigger on such a, a large purchase, whether you're a home buyer, like an end user or, or an investor right now on pre-construction? Um, the variables that I mentioned earlier were the headwinds. I want to also make sure that everyone understands that we have very, very strong currents moving in the correct direction. So we have the largest immigration wave that Ryan and I and our advisor group has been talking about before the headlines hit recently. We are at 1.3 million new Canadians in the next three years. And when COVID started to to open up that immigration uh, forces uh, again, you know, we started to, to see that and report that. But we all knew that was coming. We shouldn't be surprised that we're uh, got this incredible, incredible immigration wave. We simply cannot provide the housing stock if it is rental or for uh, home ownership. And um, you know, we're going to have um, we have a hundred thousand new coming into British Columbia. Our entire industry, in full capacity, has difficulty delivering twenty five thousand new homes a year throughout British Columbia for new construction. And that those are not going to stop. Those those immigration uh, numbers are going to continue continue to grow. We absolutely need that labor force. We're, you know, we've got um, the lowest uh, unemployment rate that we've we've had historically, and so um, you, you know we we've got um, a strong economy here. It'll be very very interesting to see if the the federal government can actually navigate a, a soft landing on our inflation uh, and not trigger a recession, which they're going to try very hard to do. And uh, you know, our Canadian oil twenty five percent of all of our exports are energy, mostly oil. And we're one of the top six oil producers in the world. We produce more oil than all of Europe combined. So we are a very, very strong economy worldwide. And Vancouver can't be seen in isolation. I think this is the amazing, the amazing thing that we 
it's so easy to look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, it's so obvious. Everyone in the world wants to live in Vancouver. It was so obvious that we recovered so quickly. It was so obvious that those upward forces were there. But now in the moment, we, we seem to lose sight of the fact that we are a very small city on a global scale, that we have a, a very friendly federal policy around immigration, and everybody wants to live in Canada, and Vancouver's the top of their list. That, that is the underlying force that is driving the market. And to answer your question around why would someone pull the trigger today? Well, because in three years from now, it's not going to be cheaper. And interest rates are still very low. They've clicked up 50 basis points. They could go up another uh, five more. But you look at the last 30 years, they're still generationally low. So we were century low, you're right, a year ago. But we are still very low interest rates. The other little piece that is of interest is that rental rates are now really, really driving up. Rental rates are up 20% from where they were just 18 months ago, if you look at new product uh, coming to market. So we're seeing rental rates in downtown approaching $5 a foot for, for basic product. We're seeing Canby Corridor at 450 a foot. We're seeing North Road and Coquitlam at 350 a foot. These are record high rental rates. They can easily absorb an extra half a point or one or a full point of interest rates if an investor's thinking about how am I going to cover my my monthly costs. So I guess to answer your question, there's, you know, real estate shouldn't be day traded. You know, if real estate was day traded, maybe we'd be sitting on the side looking for these little opportunities, yeah. but it's, it's too expensive and we're never going to time it perfectly. And and each piece of real estate is so uniquely different. So when we, when we search for real estate, whether it be for our own use or for investment use, we're going to scour the market and we're going to really find something that fits our needs. And when we do find something, we should be thinking long-term. We should be thinking three to five years plus. And I think anyone listening to this podcast right now can have great confidence in the medium to long term. Like if the if the question was, because I drafted behind that, if the question was, you know, sh- is now a good time and should I be considering real estate still? Did I miss? Right. Like, is that, if that, you know what? No, no uh, what I was actually thinking of, like, was it strikes me as the market likes certainty. Right. And I guess COVID's the exact opposite of certainty because we've been living through really uncertain times. But right now, it seems like there's. You know, there's a lot of headwinds, especially around just carrying costs, I think is the is the big fear, right? Like, what if my carrying costs are a lot more expensive a year and a half from now or two years from now than than what I'm expecting? It's it's really hard to plan, right? Um, so that that was kind of kind of the logic of the question. Right. But I but I think Cameron, you you kind of answered it. And I love this idea of real estate not being day trading, because we've talked in the last month or two about, you know, in February it was like you can't miss. This is unbeatable. By March 15th, it was like real estate. Was real estate ever a good idea? This seems like the stupidest thing ever. Like the narrative shifts so quickly that in in effect, it's it's noise <laughs> most of the time. But yeah, curious to hear your thoughts. Something that stands out would be just thinking about the stress tests of pre-approval requirements through to the rates that we have today. Like that buffer that has been brought among all Canadians that purchase real estate in specifically in British Columbia, that buffer allows us to to grow into new thresholds of interest rate and still be relatively protected. Right. right? So Canadians have been protected through government intervention over the past five years as a result of some of the stress test changes. Now, I think what becomes interesting, though, is, and again, this, this builds on what Cameron has shared, strong currents of demand, no question around that. And, and then when we think about the supply chain disruption, something that, uh, that we haven't touched on yet is rising construction costs and the impact of rising interest rates and the impact on bonds, right? So let's first hit on rising construction costs. You have cost escalation that for the most part has been increasing over the last decade at anywhere from 5 to 10%, right, year over year. In the last two months, many are, are reporting cost escalation of anywhere 
from 20 to 30%, right? Very, very quickly. That's within the last 60 days. Now, the expectation is that those costs are going to come back down as we figure out supply chain, Ukraine being a really contributing, a really strong contributing factor to that. And so as cost level, and we account for a new threshold, some of the conversations that we're hearing, well, you'll see the cost of rebar, the cost of steel, the cost of concrete fluctuate with market. Uh, labor never comes back down. So while, while some of the fixed costs will increase, labor likely likely to hold. And I think that coming out of, say, three to four months from now, we're going to understand costs better. And many development partners are going to choose not to bring homes into the marketplace, mm-hmm. right? Because from a cost perspective, they just don't make financial sense. Many of the rental that have transitioned maybe as being a four-market building originally purchased back in 2018, 2019, repackaged as rental because those rates are so affordable. Now, looking at the performance, many of them do not make sense. Right? This is a common theme as well. And so what we're going to see is housing stock shift significantly. Right? There's a bit of a pendulum that's at play right now. And so it's highly likely that you know 20,000 homes just over released in pre-sale last year in 2021. This year, we, we anticipated that it would be strong, but likely not at those levels. And if, if uh, rising costs continue to hold, the amount of inventory is going to fall dramatically. And we're going to see, you know, challenges for access to inventory of buyers. And we know that in those moments, price escalation happens. And then there's already upward pressure from cost escalation. So pre-sale market can't really swing backwards too far, right? So mm-hmm. from a risk perspective, when you think about those variables, it's hard to imagine how Metro Town tomorrow is cheaper than Metro Town today, right? And so hopefully there's a degree of stability that you're talking about. And then if you, if you were to forecast that out and you were to think about what reduced housing supply in 2023 and 2024 look like, it really does feel like low inventory, strong immigration, higher costs of construction, prices have to push up in order for these programs to come to market. And, and that's ultimately whether it's a one-year or it's a three-year perspective that is you know, highly probable. And so when we think about 10-year cycles, you know, for the most part, Vancouver has doubled almost every 10 years. Cameron predicted some time ago that it would happen in 15. Um, yeah, I was wrong. And you were, you were, you were, you were the more we, aggressive one and you were absolutely right. We're, you know, but likely somewhere between that 10 and 15 timeframe, we are going to experience another doubling, right? Yeah. As long as interest rates are, are kept moderately affordable. And, and it's highly likely that the Canadian government is going to play a really strong role in how they can facilitate because the housing market just adds so much steam to our economy. Ryan, let me just uh, add to that theme. Um, stability is what we would all hope for. Stability allows the development community to bring forward projects with with confidence and, and be able to deliver housing stock, which is very much needed in, in our region. And uh, when the, all levels of government are, are trying to play with the levers of demand and, and, and policies to, to try to slow things down, that does nothing to make our region less livable. You know, that's the reason why people want to be here. It's not because, you know, uh, for, for any other reason other than, uh, you know, we're one of the best places to live in the world. And so whether you're an existing Canadian or, or a new Canadian, you know, you want to be here. And, uh, and really it's the affordability factor, of course, that comes to mind and, you know, kind of starts pushing, pushing people into different areas, different geographies or make different choices. But, uh, you know, those forces are going to continue to be here. The rental thing, I think, can't be uh, underestimated. The rental right. stock is a, is the big part of the whole story. And although, you know, we, we continue to talk about real estate values and, and purchasing on the rental side, we need 20,000 vacant units to give us one and a half percent vacancy rate. One half vacancy rate would just keep us kind of flat. We have zero vacancy rate and therefore we continue to see rents pushing up, pushing up, pushing up. So, you know, city of Vancouver, get, you know, has a bunch of fanfare and they have a press release when they approve a 200 unit rental building. 
we need 20,000 units just to have a one and a half percent vacancy rate in our greater metro Vancouver area. And we're going to continue to see rental rates pressure upwards. Very, very, very low rental stock as the immigration forces continue to flow into the city and everyone wants to continue to stay here. And pretty soon the gap between rental and purchase values is going to close again. And so we're going to see, as Ryan mentioned, that purchase price uh, come back in a big way at some point in the near future. I mean, what's so interesting is that we're celebrating different milestones at different parts of the life cycle. So early on, we're celebrating how much pre-sale opportunity there is in the amount of inventory that we're releasing and how these are being absorbed. And every home that is sold, ultimately, whether it's a, a primary resident or an end user or an investor, ultimately, it's going to find its way to house a family. And there was this massive swing from for market opportunities all the way over to rental. But as rates rise and construction costs rise, we're going to see that swing back in. And so whether it's 20,000 rental or whether it's 25,000 new homes that we need to see, ultimately, we're not building enough. Mm-hmm. And we know that if temporary rates and massive increases in construction costs are going to pull back supply, if I'm a home buyer today or I'm, a, I'm, I'm an investor, I'm looking at this and saying, I have a moment in time where we're going to see some headwinds, some some negative headlines. And that's probably the ideal time when you have access to inventory to make some concentrated bets on what the market's going to do over the next five years. And we're in that window for the next four to six months. And then after that, it'll evaporate. I'm thinking specifically about the project timelines and related to supply chain issues. And like, I mean, I just had a conversation with a, a guy who owns a flooring company and he's like, if, if it, if it doesn't go out on the barge, uh, leaving China, you know, it's like, it could be another six to eight weeks on everything that somebody's selecting. Right. He can't get flooring. Are you guys, what, what's happening with materials and, and timelines related to, to projects right now? I mean, one of the, the bigger conversations that we're having in our boardroom, which is centering around when is the appropriate time to launch. And that's tied to the conversation we just had around costs. And a big part of why those costs are escalating is because you just cannot gain access to the materials that you need to build, right? And so if you pre-sell today, and we know that construction costs are escalating on average 5 to 10% annually, and in the last 60 days, 25%. They've just jumped. They've increased so, so dramatically. Many home builders are looking at this and saying, we need to understand our costs so that we can understand the values that we need to pre-sell at, so that we can understand our business terms and financial outcomes of this project. And I think that those are some of the headlines and the headwinds that we're moving into. You know, uh, a little bit closer to home, we're working on some modifications to our patio right now. And just heard from our contractor, (laughs) it's going to take eight weeks to secure timber, right? And six months ago, it would have been on site in three days. Right. Yeah, I'm waiting till 2027 for windows, I think, right now. I think something to that effect, it's really a long wait on my place. I mean, I I think we're talking about short-term disruptions that are, that are showing up in the housing industry, but I also want to make the point that one of our clients today, looking at a piece of land, making a business decision to build a new development, unsure of the approval process and the approval risk, that is going to be 12 to 24 months. Then we do a marketing effort which is really important for them to create a market test for them to get construction financing. That again is anywhere from 12 to 15 months. Then they put a shovel in the ground. And if it's a concrete project, it would be 36 months to build. That is a minimum of five and a half year timeline from today to deliver keys to a purchaser. So um, even if it's a rental project or a condominium project, we are seeing British Columbia having 400,000 new residents living in this province 
if we're making a decision today to deliver housing stock in, in five years from now. So even if a um, whole bunch of positive forces come into the market and a whole bunch of development activity happens, we're not delivering that housing stock for down the road. We're keep kicking the ball down the, down the field, <laughs> down the field. And the governments, unfortunately, they're dealing with shorter timelines. You know, they're, they're have a popularity contest that, that, you know, to get elected on the next, the next ticket. And um, they're really not making those long-term decisions that are going to um, continue to create significant impacts in the whole affordability conversation. Those pauses that you're speaking about, that's the reason why we feel like there is so much stability when you look long in the marketplace, right? It's the short-term decision-making framework that has to happen over the next six to 12 months where development partners have to make the decision, what are our cost structures look like and what do our revenue numbers look like? And maybe for the moment, for the time being, let's pause. But if you're an investor or a home buyer uh, that's looking for a family opportunity, that's where the opportunity is going to be because you have to think 36 to 48 months out and just incredible lack of supply. These these momentary forces are going to negatively impact inventory that's coming onto the marketplace mm-hmm. for sale. And out of that will, of course, have a huge impact when that supply cycle begins to complete two and a half years down the road. Is this tracking to be one of the worst supply shortages in, say, the past 10 to 20 years, in your yes, opinion? you bet. You can even look at uh, listing supply ratios. But I think uh, if you're asking the question over the long term, as, as, as Ryan was just speaking about, we are going to be faced with an incredible housing shortage. And it's really difficult to put it on a graph because it's forcing people to make different geographic housing decisions. We're, we're seeing people leave the lower mainland because we just there's no housing stock, which is pushing up values. Um, you've got excess demand competing for the same piece of real estate. And uh, people are going to choose different places to live. I think you're going to see a net provincial uh, migration uh, decline. We're going to see, you know, Alberta's now booming again. I think we're going to see young people looking for opportunity and moving to Alberta again. And uh, it's going to be difficult to really put a finger in five years from now, put a finger and say, well, that was the reason why. But we're really going to see people shifting and making different geographic decisions as the pressures continue to mount in Vancouver. And, you know, it's funny just thinking about, you know, again, and this is spending too much time on Twitter, but there seems like there's this interest rate uh, is the main driver, supply is the main driver. Those are like the two competing forces on Twitter, at least. But the one thing that strikes me is all the interest rate bears are basically saying, oh, look, hey, interest rates went up half a point. The prices are coming off or demand's disappearing. Where's the supply side now? But rents are actually shooting through the roof. So it actually speaks to, like, I think that's, the rents are kind of the key component right now in my mind that, you know, that this supply issue that we're talking about is actually, is actually fundamental. I wanted to go back though, um, to talk Ryan about this next four to six month window you're talking about and kind of understand, let's assume the downturn or softening or whatever we want to call it is 12 to 18 months. What is that can we just walk through, I guess, when you're thinking about your development partners, what does this look like? Do starts, they, they hit pause, do starts, are st- starts basically dry up six months, eight months, a year from now? Are there a lot less projects in 2023, 2024? And then circling back to the next four to six months being the window of opportunity, is that because there's still a lot of inventory right now? Is that Does that mean that Potentially, there will be some deals to be had. Just curious to hear kind of how this plays out. Well, we can come at that from so many different <laughs> angles. Um, I think let's first start with uh, maybe the, the conditions that we're experiencing today. So 2021, 2022, ban- banner years 
for the volume of transactions in both resale and presale. And many would think, well, that's a that's a post-COVID thing, right? That's a that's a money thing, that's an interest rate thing. And those absolutely are are influencing. But it's also a 2019 thing, right? The number of housing starts that began in 2019, and as Cameron shared, it's a two to three year build cycle for many of these programs, especially wood frame. And if you look at some of the most in-demand inventory in 2022 and likely 2021, it's going to fall in in townhome product, right? Which is an 18 to 24 month build cycle and four story and six story wood frame. And the result of maybe 2019 and 2020 significant depression of housing starts and specifically project starts, we're feeling the run up in lack of inventory. And that's exactly what Cameron's talking about. We still have 500,000 people that want to come to Vancouver. The challenge is, is that we didn't start building anything in 2019 and 2020. And we're saddled two and a half years later with the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment of time that we will be in once again. It's, you know, you're going to see this reevaluation of value that's tied to construction costs, revenue, and interest rates, right? Those are the, the three major levers that are pulling on developers' performance today. That's going to cause many to reflect. Some will push into market and some will not. Some that have very affordable land buys that were purchased in 2019 or 2020, likely working through the rezoning process, they can still make those programs very successful and they will push into market. But anyone that purchased something within the last 18 months, potentially at a much higher land value rate with the rising construction costs, they have to choose probably to hold, to gain more certainty because their performance aren't as robust. And as a result, the, the business terms might push or motivate them to say, hey, let's pause, let's understand before we go. And so that's going to see, we think the number of housing project starts to reduce. So just to put this into perspective, when you think about where we were at for 2018, we were about 159 project launches, right? In the entire, uh, that 12 month period. In 2017, we're sitting at just over 200, right? And when we think about where we're at in 2021, 137 housing starts, right? And so you can see that we're still not keeping up to, to the rates that we were at in 2017 and 2018. And I think the big challenge will be as projects begin to reevaluate, some of them rentals, some of them for market. Many of the rentals were actually repackaged from for market. You're going to see those pauses and the inventory consequence will be felt two years from now, mm-hmm. to three years now, not too dissimilar to what 2019 did to 2021. Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate 
or volunteer and they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers, that's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. Sorry, just to, just thinking through this from a disinterested guy wondering about buying a presale, it's the next four to six months is the window. I think that, there's significant shifts in perspective over the next four to six months, right? And you're going to see really strong incentives to make sure that we're hitting pre-sale tests on land that was purchased, in most cases, six to 12 months before the next launch, the, the next round of launches that are going to happen in the fall. And with the construction risk, many developers are thinking, hey, let's move inventory, right? And as a result of that, you're going to see discounting and you're going to see competitiveness on incentives. And so that's going to create a moment in time for many high volume agents, and for many of those that are looking for access for home buyers to be able to seek out and maybe have access to inventory or access to homes that they typically would not. And I think out of that falls a perspective that would this be a, a moment in time that you have more choice and maybe make a better decision. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of price leveling off or price compression, it's really hard, I think, to predict that. More likely than not, though, prices cannot drop on presale, right? I think that we can see resale adjustments because there's been such a strong run up. But when you look at where the market's going to be two to three years ago, and as Cameron said, you, you have to have a longer term perspective on these choices. It's hard to imagine how prices of pre-sale could come off where they are today. And it's much more likely that with the lack of inventory and increased demand that you're going to see them escalate. So put simply, a developer is not going to release a project into market unless the prices support their costs. Right. And so, as Ryan said, they sit and wait. And homeowners, to uh, to try to answer your question, I think it's difficult to predict what's the window going to be. I think people trying to wait six months and think somehow prices are going to drop and they're going to have a great opportunity, I think it's false. I think we're going to continue to see inventory constraints. Um, there may be a few projects where developers are close to getting their, you know, their, their tests and, you know, therefore they just need to get a few more and, you know, they're going to throw around some incentives. But those are going to be so thin, it's not going to cover the demand that's broadly in the market. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that probably the best time is, is now. But nevertheless, it's going to probably be a flat market over the next, uh, you know, six to twelve months in the pre-sale world. Flat meaning values, not not overall values. And let's let's be clear. I mean, I'm worried about the headlines that come up because they exasperate, you know, people's fear and, and and uncertainty in the market. If we look at the last thirty years, a typical real estate project that Ryan and I'd be involved with didn't take weeks and months to sell. It took years to sell. It took it took six months minimum 12 months, 24 months, 36 months was really, really typical. And we've all gotten used to this market where projects, you know, blow out in a, in a, in a month and, you know, and then the developer shuts it down and, you know, they get, get organized for construction. That's, that's a real boom and bust kind of mentality. And so I think consumers can buy with confidence still with projects that are uh, finding people that are making just, you know, very, very discerning purchases where they're educating themselves. They've got choice. Um, they're picking the one that suits them, whether it be for investment or for for their own use. And that's a much healthier market. But certainly, as Ryan said, prices can't afford to come off because developers can't simply build those projects. I'm, I'm, I'm going to add on to that. We're moving into uh, June, July, and August. 
from a, a travel perspective, right? Like the number of active bodies in Vancouver or the Fraser Valley that are going to look for real estate. Like many, many are going to vacation for the first time in two years, right? Many are going to jump on planes. They're actually going to leave the city they're, and they're going to choose a destination that's not Whistler. Right. right? <laughs> or the island. Yeah. Uh, that's a first. And so when you think about the impact of a mindset of vacation, a mindset of family, a, a mindset of connection socially with your friends in, that you haven't seen for a long time, that's got to have an impact on the number of transactions that we're going to see out of the housing market, mm-hmm. right? And so today we're sitting around 3,200 for Greater Vancouver last month. Uh, Fraser Valley is obviously about half of that, but you know that's the shift that I think that you know that four to six month time frame of resale value. We have rising inventory already happening, right? Uh, I think Cam's right. It's a flat market price point, but it would not surprise us if some of the, the strongest opportunities for access to inventory are going to happen within that time window. Mm-hmm. And from a pre-sale standpoint developers that are going to choose to launch, it is going to be all about a pre-sale test, right? The first 60% of every program that goes, developers are going to make sure that they're hitting those pre-sale tests so they, as Cam said, they can get a shovel on the ground. That last 40% will be all about creating value and pushing price points up, right? So remaining inventory is going to be, how do we make the margins work? But we have to get our construction financing first. And so those motivations, I think, are going to be some of the strongest in the, in the near short term. You know, one thing I'm thinking about here, just in terms of, Developers pulling back in 2018, 2019, 2020, when the market wasn't really there. And then we kind of see this demand shock and then, you know, a lot of starts. And now it, again, we're talking about, you know, the demand not being there for pre-construction. So, so maybe developers are going to pull back again in order to get the housing numbers, Cameron, that you were talking about, like, we're just so undersupplied. Like, is there actually a way, like, does it just take a prolonged boom in the market, which some people would say we've, we've actually had, but this is maybe more theoretical. Like how do we actually get that inventory, the the housing numbers that we need when, you know, if they, we go on these runs, but then everybody pulls back and then we deal with the fallout from everybody pulling back. And it kind of seems to be this perpetual cycle. Like, do you have any thoughts on? It is perpetual. The, the water is always flowing. The water is always flowing. That is the immigration numbers. And these variables we talk about create a dam and the dam, the pressure builds up, pressure builds up, pressure builds up, and then it releases boom. And then we all have these experiences where it rushes forward and, and prices reset themselves again, but they're, but then they fall into to a band for a while and then they, they jump again. So, you know, we really do see this constant upward pressure and um, it would be a healthier market if that was just a steady flow. But uh, but nevertheless, we do have these variables. Some of them are self-imposed government policy ex- examples, but a lot of them are, are international forces and forces beyond, beyond uh, our own borders that show up. And uh, I just want to continue to reiterate that Vancouver is considered blue chip on an international stage. Ryan and I talk about that a lot. Uh, the increased international volatility continues to make Vancouver stand out as a pl- as a hedge, a place to to, to put some long term uh, capital. Even if a ban on foreign ownership is not going to do a thing at all, with the exception of of secondary residence markets like Whistler, um, foreign ownership is negligible when they sit empty. It is there is foreign ownership, but it is really rental stock. Ryan, I don't see the difference between 100 foreigners owning 100 condominiums that are re- in the rental stock than. Ontario Teachers Pension Fund owning a 100-unit rental building. It's the exact same thing. It is needed rental stock. And so uh, it's actually more favorable because those individual investors allow those developers of those condominiums to actually make those projects come to existence. They they provide um, a presale, which allows for construction financing, allows those projects to get built. So those international positive forces are, are going to continue to, to flow into Canada and into Vancouver. 
And uh, ultimately, we need to to add to that housing stock. And I think it's an impossible theory that you're you're asking. I think that, you know, the only way to uh, increase affordability is to make Vancouver less terrific. Sadly, <laughs> yeah. If it's not a, if it's a place where people don't want to live, then we'll bleed people elsewhere, and our prices will magically improve. Our affordability will magically improve. But unfortunately, well, that's not going to happen. Fortunately, our current mayor's doing his best. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, all layers of government are doing their best. I, I think that's that's the really interesting part of the equation uh, that you have to factor in. You can go back to 2018, and you can look at shifts in demand, shifts in interest rate, shifts in costs, and we saw a really strong run-up in price and demand for the years to follow. Another significant shift in 2016 with change in, in mortgage policy, significant run-in of price that followed that, right? Momentary pauses followed by rampant price escalation, and we are likely in that moment in the near term, but it's slightly different in cause, and it's going to cause many home builders to, to really make a decision whether or not they want to release inventory or not. That'll be the number one controlling factor, I think, on prices on pre-sale over the next four to six months, and I think on resale values three years from today. And really what you're betting on is two things. You're betting on how terrific Vancouver is, as Cameron said, and you're also betting that the policymakers and the bureaucrats are not going to get it right, right? Like that's the real bet in terms of stability is the belief that they cannot shift their perspective of how to build and allow home builders to create communities fast enough to keep up with the demand. Mm -hmm. Is it surprising to see the conversation shifting towards supply now like david eby's talking supply it seems like all levels of government is now accepting what wasn't previously accepted as as the fundamental issue of housing the main reason why is because after lots of effort from from very very intelligent voices finally the the electorate started to talk about it and so the politicians showed up to the party really it's a popularity contest they're not able to to really move the levers in a substantial way you know, we, we joke uh, around our office, around our boardroom. So, yeah, well, they, the governments at all levels are finally talking about supply. But we've all been talking about it. When I say we, not just Ryan and I and podcasts like this, but all levels of industry and, um, ed, you know, educators and economists have been talking about the incredible supply-demand imbalance and the real need for housing stock. And the, the it hasn't been a popular thing to talk about. People mm -hmm. don't want to see, you know, Vancouver change. There's a lot of nostalgia uh, nostalgia nostalgic people here in Vancouver as in as in most communities and seeing seeing the city grow and 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 change is, is a difficult thing for many people and so so uh, a lot of the existing individuals uh, that, that are that are electing the various levels of government they are their voices have not been uh, preaching for supply and now that's starting to shift they, people are starting to see that that's important and so the politicians are jumping on the bandwagon yeah that populist politics is certainly at play now and I think that there's acknowledgement uh, in the headlines that inventory needs to improve. The words come so easy, but the shift that has to happen is at a cultural level and how municipalities work with home builders to be able to bring supply to the marketplace. That shift is going to take years, right? And how communities can embrace those perspectives and understand that if we don't build, if we don't create communities that are ultimately denser than the ones that have existed before them, we're going to continue to run into really big challenges and how we can house British Columbians. Yeah, I, I really like this idea of you know, the, the two bets are Vancouver's growth trajectory. Like you're betting on that, which seems like a solid bet and government ineptitude or government inability <laughs> to, 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 to actually bring about the changes to lead to the supply. Like those are the two bets you have to make 
here and they seem like sure ones to me, but the bureaucratic inefficiency, right? And as long as our timelines on approval are what they are, and my guess is that if you really want to understand how safe real estate is long-term in Vancouver, just track the timelines, right? It, it takes, as Cameron shared, anywhere from 36 to 48 months to actually move a project forward and get, in some cases, a shovel in the ground. And it takes another two to three years to deliver that. So as long as that's at play, ultimately the investments at home buyers and that investors are making in this marketplace are very, very safe. Maybe a switching gears a little bit, because I, I want to, obviously, every time we have you on, we, we like to talk about the sub markets and product types that are going to be performing really well in the, in the near future, um, as well as talk about some of the secondary marketplaces out there right now that, that people have been talking about for the past, you know, 18 to 24 months, thinking specifically the Okanagan, uh, Vancouver Island, Whistler, First of all, let's talk about product type and submarkets just in the lower mainland. Where do you think, what, what product types and submarkets do you think are going to perform well in the balance of 2022 and 2023? Well, that's a really tough question. You're, you're specifically asking about Vancouver lower mainland. You know, Ryan and I definitely have liked things that are differentiated. So commodity real estate where people have, have multiple alternative choices, I think is going to be the market that's going to be the, the most sluggish in the, the near term. We still think it's going to perform well because of that, those supply constraints that we've already spoke of. But differentiated product, which is small, typically smaller projects or unique projects in, in smaller infill locations, uh, we think those are going to do very well in, in all different uh, economic strata as well. So, uh, you know, from, from, from entry level to mid-level to, to high end, we think those are going to be um, uh, positive. But also um, those focused on the end user is going to do well for a while. So uh, townhouse product people choosing more space over location and, and the, we're seeing the flow of people. We're seeing record numbers of people um, moving further east to make their homeowner decisions. And they're they're doing that because they have more flexibility in their, their household and in their work environments and allowing them to, um, to stretch uh, further geographically to get space. So we're seeing townhome product in the Fraser Valley continuing to run and do well. And I would say that the concrete side of the market, longer timelines, higher cost to deliver, I see those areas, especially in commoditized real estate, being the area that's probably going to, uh, sluggish would be the wrong word, but I think uh, it won't be as hot as some of those niche products. And and when we're saying commoditized real estate, I, I think everybody understands like, you know, there's 51 beds that are basically the same or, yeah. or you know, you have in, choices in, of in, 10. In five different towers in the same community. Right. So it's, and location wise, is there areas, does that actually well, you know, factor the, in or no? Well, you know, I, I just want to add to my statement long-term, that commodity real estate could be the best investment play. Long-term in five, six years when, you know, that tower in Metrotown or that tower in Brentwood is delivered, rental rates are going to be through the roof and it's going to be great investment as far as a yield is concerned. So, um, you know, a small compact one bedroom could be a great investment unit. I think it's going to perhaps be one of the more difficult markets in the short to near term, but long-term that commodity real estate is typically going into our energy centers. Ryan and I call it energy centers, sort of our, our major urban cores within our greater metro area. So that's everything from, uh, our, you know, Richmond, downtown Richmond to Central City, Metrotown, Brentwood, downtown Vancouver, obviously. You know, these these energy centers where they tend to put a lot of density and they're well-supported with transit long-term are going to be fantastic places to invest. But in the short term, those could be the ones that are going to be the most disrupted. And it sounds like the Fraser Valley, because one one of the kind of things we've been talking about, thinking about is, you know, went on a real crazy run as compared, at least from our vantage point in in Vancouver. And it seems like it slowed considerably. Are we seeing 
that market, it sounds like though, at least from what you guys are seeing, the the kind of townhome family product is actually performing. The headline of that market slowing is a really tough one because if you compare the slow market yeah. rotations here with my fingers, the slow market of uh, of March 2022, it is still a hyper aggressive market when you have a 30 year perspective, right? When you look at the sales ratios that are existing in that market today, anywhere from like 35% and in some cases, almost hundred percent, depending on the neighborhood across, you know, single family attached apartments and then townhouses. And so still really strong and robust, probably going to remain there, likely going to continue to see price escalation across most product types in the Fraser Valley. The point that Cameron's making is that the homes that are going to do the, the, the best from an investment standpoint, uh, there's two criteria that I think that a home buyer should have. One is, is can you afford it long-term, right? The best home is the one that you can actually afford to manage, whether you're living in your, your, yourself or whether it's an investment for your future. The second is going to be the homes that are on the bell curve, the, interse- the intersection, the bell curve of, of affordability uh, and income, right? Fraser Valley fit that for a period of time, right? Townhomes not too long ago were $600,000 there. Single family not too long ago were $750,000 there. And there's a significant number of home buyers that came from different marketplaces with that unlocking of geography, thanks to COVID, Zoom work opportunities, right? Um, at distance that were able to move into markets where they could afford more space, right? And ultimately they bought where that intersection was happening. And I think that that's going to be the tail of the tape for the next, still for the next 12 to 24 months. What's coming out of COVID right now is as, as we all re- respond to the normal is that many are having or feeling more confidence now that their workplace has shifted or they're confident that they're going to resign. And we're, we're hearing a lot about that great resignation, right? They will resign if their workplace does not allow them to shift their habits. And I think that that'll be the next wave of home buyers that we're going to experience is those that actually didn't make the shift up until now, but now recognize that their workplace policies are going to be intact for some time to come. And they're going to continue to look at affordability. And so secondary markets like the Okanagan, you know, some have moved from Vancouver to the Fraser Valley out of fear, right? It gave them more affordability, but their heart is actually somewhere else. And they, it was an intermediate step. And I think that that'll be some of the next shifts that you experience. So, or that we experience. So, you know, when you think about the Okanagan commodity offerings, there have been really successful over the last 12 months, but that's likely going to shift. The expectation we believe is, is that those towers that are sold out to spec buyers without ever taking, setting foot in the city, those are likely becoming a thing of the past. I think thoughtful real estate will continue to be the priority right? Townhouses are going to be very, very strong. And I think projects that have something really unique, right? That have really been designed for end users. And I think that the 350 square foot studios that are stacked one on top of another, 30 stories high, I think that inventory becomes harder and harder to move in the future in secondary markets like Kelowna. That's really interesting to think about. Like we, we've been, a lot of people have been conceiving of, of the market when COVID is gone, which it seems now everything's opening up, everything's open. But it's this idea of now the city center, the areas that were popular pre-pandemic will continue to be strong, but everywhere else will potentially get clobbered. But it sounds like there's this kind of more gray or nuanced thought where, you know, this work from home will continue to some extent. We talked about this last time, I recall, and that is we saw those those trends of, of greater flexibility and uh, and technology giving people different patterns in their lives. Those trends were already afoot pre-COVID. COVID just accelerated things substantially and, and um, cemented some of those into our work cultures. So examples of that was uh, Squamish was, was starting to grow prior to COVID and COVID just accelerated and it boomed. And, you know, obviously a great lifestyle place. And we don't think that that's going to uh, unwind. 
But let's be clear, as Ryan and I have always said, location is still going to be a luxury and Vancouver as a cosmopolitan city is going to appeal to, to people that are looking for those particular variables in their lifestyle decision. So some are going to want to be in Squamish and right, you know, have the outdoor lifestyle and some are going to want to be in downtown Vancouver and have the urban lifestyle. And uh, it's the same reason why my wife and I are traveling to London in a, in a few weeks and uh, why downtown London is one of the most expensive locations to live in the world. And uh, I was doing some research uh, or just, just messing around in a parking spot to lease for 75 years is 500,000 pounds. And, uh, you know, that's downtown London. So you've got incredible constraints and great urban cosmopolitan lifestyle. And Vancouver is, is a baby compared to downtown London, but those forces are afoot. And so I think that what happens is our region is starting to open up and giving people different flexibility. We've got to make sure that we all understand it's not creating a black hole in our urban centers. Um, it's just allowing people um, to, to, uh, to find what's ideal for themselves, given their affordability. The Fraser Valley is, I think, a really good example of some of the shifts that you're talking about, Cameron, and then the Okanagan, you know, we've we've had a very active role in the Okanagan over the last 12 months. Our advisory services are working some of the biggest uh, development opportunities that will come to light there over the next decade. And so we've really dug deep in understanding demand and then also having an attempt to understand supply, right? And making thoughtful design decisions around how we are programming inventory to keep up with what we're forecasting to be some of the needs of that city over the next 10 years. And I think, you know, whether it's, places like Kelowna or places like Victoria, it would be incredible if those cities can continue to grow and they can offer residences, something that's a little bit different than what might be available to them in the Fraser Valley or the lower mainland. But Cameron's right. There will be different needs for different people and they're going to, some will choose Vancouver and some will choose secondary markets like Kelowna long-term. And our expectation is that, you know, we don't believe that those violent market swings that happened in 2008 in secondary markets like, like Surrey or even further East, we don't believe that those are afoot, uh, using your word, anymore, right? Those become a thing of the past because you have to acknowledge the demographic trends and you mm -hmm. have to acknowledge the shifts in work lifestyle. You know, one thing I just thinking about this is I saw some stat that I can't recall where or exactly what it was, but it basically was pointing out Kelowna is a, it's actually a very young city now, like it's, and it's getting younger, especially in relation to a lot of the other places in the Okanagan and actually just thinking about that, it sounds like Victoria is the only city that's older than Vancouver. <laughs> in yeah, terms of New, the New Westminster was uh, was one of our original uh, settlements here, and then uh, the capital moved from New Westminster to Victoria over some politicking uh, 120 years ago. Um, you know, we don't even like calling them secondary centers. I think that's how you know sometimes the industry refers to them. But these are phenomenal places to live, and they're right. growing and booming. The real difficulty, of course, for, for people listening to this is that, well, that all sounds good in theory, but people have roots, you know, family and roots. And it's really difficult to sometimes break those bonds and make those those difficult decisions. But these are incredible lifestyle places. And the nice thing about Kelowna, the whole Sea to Sky corridor, the Fraser Valley, and even Victoria, is that people perceive that they can still stay close to their family enough to make those decisions and those leaps. And so... The affordability that's been really uh, running in Vancouver, the increased uh, flexibility that people have through work are starting to finally create enough of a, of a catalyst to get people to, to move. Most of the, these, these, these centers are being driven by people moving out of Vancouver. People are graduating out of Vancouver, moving into these centers for opportunity or lifestyle. And, um, and Vancouver is growing because of international immigration. So um, people coming from around the world, uh, coming into Canada, their first choice is going to be Vancouver and Toronto. And they're not choosing to, to, to come here and, and move to Nanaimo. 
So um, those cities are benefiting from people moving out of Vancouver and creating pressure on those individual cities as well. There's a program in a city very close to Kelowna called Penticton that we're a part of. And this just kind of puts into context how little inventory comes to marketplaces like this. So the project itself will be called Beach House. It is waterfront residences. We think that it will be one of the top five waterfront residences in British Columbia uh, that will come to market in the next 12 months. This is a really special piece of land in a very special location part of Penticton, uh, saddled in between two lakes. And when we've looked at demand to date, and, and again, we don't even have signage up yet. And the amount of interest that is coming from both the local marketplace, but then also coming from the lower mainland and from Calgary, it is unbelievable the forces that are at play here. And, and the reality is, is that there will be only one tower that's sold in Penticton, likely anything this style, design, and aesthetic in the next potentially 24 to 36 months. There'll be other some small format, but it's just so rare to have opportunities like this. And I think that that's going to be the other really interesting play is programs like Beach House, I think, are going to have significant influence to be able to reshape these communities. And so, you know, Penticton is growing right now. Its demographic is absolutely getting younger. And it feels like there's a really strong coolness factor that's happening within that city. And that's happening in so many different small town places all throughout British Columbia. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you have to talk a little bit about Squam- uh, Squamish. Cam, thanks for highlighting that. Uh, growing, doing very well from a lifestyle standpoint. Whistler, right? Some of the strongest resale values that we've seen anywhere in British Columbia are coming out of out of Whistler. And again, it's the same challenge as what Penticton has, just a significant lack of inventory mm-hmm. that's creating so much upward pressure on, on price. Does Whistler see any downside with the foreign buyer, Ben? It, it could. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to know, but uh, so far that market has been incredibly resilient and it's mostly been driven. Ryan, I've spoken to some of our contacts there. It's mostly been driven by people uh, in greater Metro Vancouver so far, but uh, you know, during COVID is a great example. Prices really ran, supported by the local buyer. And uh, and so it wasn't dependent on the international buyer or the U.S. buyer, which has in the past been been a, been a major variable there. So it'll be interesting to see how that transpires in the next 18 months. Cameron's right. And I, I was just going to add that if you were uh, if you were to talk to Maggie Thornhill or you talk to John Ryan, both those guys, both those individuals are going to tell you the demand for Whistler is so deep that that is hard to imagine you know, anything other than inventory having a huge impact on price long-term, right? There'll be some short-term challenges that fall out of that. But when you look 10 to 20 years down the line, you're a resort town that has some of the most incredible access to skiing. You know, really, it is a 365-day resort, and it's within striking distance of Vancouver. I, I'm going to find the report, and I'll, I'll mention it in the, in the outro on the show, but there's a recent report where they did the, the average price per square foot of all the... Uh, world-class ski resorts in the world. And Whistler was still very affordable according yeah. to that resort. Both uh, both Vail and Aspen are above it in North America. And you go to Europe and you start looking at places like Val and Chamonix and uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of because uh, I just looked at the same report. Um, gosh, I can't recall in Switzerland. Anyways, all of those are substantially higher. So it's incredible. Yeah, like to the tune of like five thousand bucks a foot or something, right? Like it's yeah. just it's it's uh, it suggests Whistler has a way to go. It is definitely a, a, you know an international playground, and it's it's certainly the best within within North America uh, based on all its accolades and its reputation, and it's going to continue to to prosper as a result of that. Well, maybe I know we have a hard stop here. Maybe we'll leave it there. But uh, do you guys have a couple minutes to stick around uh, for the Five Wire? Let's do it. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey. 
That sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. Okay, so question number one, uh, one book that you'd recommend? Uh, so you guys always ask this question, so I yeah. kind of had a chance to think about it. I read some really strange uh, books, and uh, I just, well, actually, I just read Dune because my kids want to watch the movie, and I said, I got to read the book first. It's like that's supposed to be the best, or not the best, the most, uh, the biggest science fiction books of all time, so I just read Dune. It was quite interesting, so now I can watch the movie. Dune. <laughs> yeah. <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard the new movie is unbelievable as well well i recommend reading the book first yeah that's, that's a good that's like the opposite of what everybody does in high school right you watch the movie so you don't have to read the book <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, is, yeah. this is good uh, i don't know if blinkist does blinkist yeah. on dune, but yeah. no no yeah. you yeah. can't can't read dune in 13 minutes yeah um <laughs> one book that that was recommended to me actually uh, my wife bought it for me about four years ago and it was on the bookshelf and uh i watched this this podcast by jim quick a part of uh, a learning opportunity about like how to read fast. And I just pulled one off and I fell into the four seasons. Uh, it was a book that I was always meaning to read uh, by, by, um, by Sharp. And it was just an incredible uh, aha moment in terms of how we were thinking about how they grew their business and, and how that could apply to a business like ours. And all of it revolves around how do you make your customer the hero? right? How do you show up every day to just add value? And that's, it was interesting because although it, I stumbled upon it by accident, it was just hit me really, really hard and really close to my heart. I feel like that was Nick from Marcon had the same book, book recommendation. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and great and, minds. Yeah. <laughs> Is that recent too? Yeah, he yeah. said yeah, that was like from what a month ago. Oh, get out of here! You yeah, gotta, I know. This and is it was why such, it uh, almost uh, seemed like a random. Do we redo this one then? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you have to, however, you have to read it sitting by a pool out of Four Seasons, right? <laughs> that's, that's a prerequisite. Yeah. I'm in. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has had an impact on your life? And as I recall, uh, Ryan, I think you uh, cited Atomic Habits in the past. So yeah, this should be interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I still love that book. Uh, that's that's one of our go-tos within the organization is just how do you build really powerful personal and and uh, work habits, right? There was something else that I've that I've been thinking about a lot, and and that was actually just, you know, how do you build a habit where you have that ability to recognize every day that you can just make your day awesome, right? Like, there's no reason why you can't create a great day for yourself, and no matter what the challenge is, no matter what the struggle, uh, those highs and those lows, just like how do you show up and make it better? For yourself and how do you make it better for people around you? And that's something that I think um, that I'm working really hard on. And is that like the mindset, I guess? It's absolutely mindset. It's it's controlling what you can control and being very comfortable with what is outside of your control and and not only managing yourself, but then also maybe helping others around you understand that as well. Cameron. Yeah, you said the last five years. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I would uh, I'll I'll probably go last uh, you know, seven or eight years, but uh, something that has been incredibly impactful for my life is aligning my rhythms around my wife, uh, Sarah's, and especially to have little goalposts. So we have a morning routine where, you know, where we're just aligned. We have breakfast together, we get up together and you know, start our days together. And, and that has just been uh, fantastic for us as a, as a family and a couple. And, and our kids, have, of course, been a big, big part of that. And so that's been just a phenomenal thing for me to just be very aware of, of that morning routine. 
you know, we've thought about putting a new question into the five wire around morning routines. Uh, I'm so interested to hear what your guys' mornings are like. Wake up. <laughs> I can 10. tell you, I can tell you that it's basically the same. You know, it, is, it is not the same. <laughs> <laughs> it is not the same at all. I'm a night owl. Uh, Ryan's an early bird. I'll let you uh, fill in your, yourself, Ryan. But, uh, you know, what was important, you know, and, and, and I know, Ryan, you, you uh, have very thoughtful things around your family as well. So uh, one of the things that, that Sarah and I decided to do is that I just wanted to be able to drive my kids to school in the morning. This is before Zoom was a, a real thing. And so, uh, you know, we just all woke up together, you know, and we continue to do this. We wake up at the same time. And, uh, you know, have, have, wake up the kids, have breakfast and, and just get ready. And I, uh, I don't, I usually do my workouts in the late afternoon, not in the morning. So, uh, we can all spend our, our mornings together and I would be driving one of my kids to school. Now they're both, uh, out of the house and university ages now. And, um, but we still continue to have those routines. And on. Yeah. Mine, mine aren't too different in intention. My days do start early. I, I love getting just a great workout in as early as possible. So, you know, I, I, I do like. I like being at the gym or, uh, or out for a run. Uh, and it generally starts with a five. And then from there, it's, you know, trying to wrap that up early enough so that I can spend the seven o'clock. Our girls generally get up and it's all about breakfast time. So it's being together very early on in the day. I love just learning about what they're chasing. We set some intentions for the day. And then for the most part, we're dropping them off at school and getting after it. And that part of my life is probably one of the most stable. Like it's, it's something that we try to repeat every single day and probably one of the most meaningful. Yeah, fantastic. And now, now on to a question that's basically meaningless. Uh, what have you been binge watching lately or your favorite movie? Oh man, I, I love this one. <laughs> um, what have we been watching? So with my daughters, we're binge watching Marvel, like anything oh. Avenger. My youngest, she's five years old. Her name's Harper. Absolutely loves Tony Stark. So we go through Iron Man quite regularly. <laughs> And then for myself, I'm I'm all over Yellowstone right now. I'm oh. I'm kind of late to the party on it. Oh yeah, you are late. I'm a sucker yeah. for Costner. I think you can put him in anything, and it's just going to do well. Like everyone. Tell you, well, ditto, ditto for that. I I've been uh, since since we got through uh, Yellowstone. Uh, I've been kind of lost and wandering aimlessly through my my Netflix and my Prime accounts. Oh, I thought you yeah. were going to be a completist for Costner. Uh, no. Oh yeah. No. No. Yeah. No, no. I'm I'm I've already completed the the whole series. I don't I don't have to go back and watch it. Watch. Uh, um, dances with wolves again, but, uh, <laughs> what, but, what, I, what, but I, I definitely am a fan. I uh, uh, Yellowstone. Hold on, hold on. What's, what's your favorite outside of Yellowstone? What's your favorite Costner flick? Oh gosh, um, this is a new question. This is yeah, a new question. I mean, I, I'd have to. I've got notes here. It's not a part of my notes. You're putting me on the spot. Here. <laughs> Welcome to the Ryan the Lawn podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say feel the dreams. Yeah, feel the dreams. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know why it makes me cry, but it does. Feel the dreams. Yeah, yeah. dreams. Build it, and they will come. <laughs> I wish that worked in uh, in our in our real estate industry. <laughs> but before before we wrap, I want to I want to just to to make a point here. Your coffee muck says the best investment on earth is earth. That is a very true statement. And you know, looking at the volatility in the world right now, we can all have faith knowing that that sentiment is alive and well in the world. And Vancouver's top of the list, and it's going to continue to drive the market. Well, let's leave it there. But how can people find out more about what you're up to? Where can people go to find projects and what MLA is up to? I mean, a great place to start is, is uh, my guess is that you always have some links below. Of course. Great place to start is, is with the website, MLACanada.com. There you're going to find access to all the programs that are, that are currently in process of sale or coming soon. But there's also some incredible links around access to information inside the marketplace. And so our advisory department works very, very hard to curate 
some of the most important topics and conversations that are happening around the world of real estate, and then also some of the market data that falls out of those. And then of course, engage any through any of the social media applications. We're very, very strong in terms of how we connect with our home buyers, our agents, and our development partners to be able to add value. So any of the, the traditional streams. And it's a great email list to be on. Uh, I know yeah. uh, we I think always we get your daily guys stuff from you guys. I, I, I got to say our newswire has been something that, that we brought into the marketplace probably about three, maybe four years ago. And that's, we've received a lot of great feedback from it. Really what it is, is the curated list of some of the hottest topics that are covered every single day that shows up in your inbox. Very, very easy. Click on it if you're interested. And if you're not, just throw it into the, into the, the archives. But, you know, the hope is, is that we can just kind of certainly help all of our subscribers just be a little bit more real estate intelligent. Excellent. Well, thanks again, guys, for taking the time. I got it. You know, I got to I got to say, though, it's also I don't hear you guys getting very, very many shout outs or props, but just thank you for having us on the show. It's funny because many people in our organization, especially our advisory, like, they actually are some of your I think your most loyal subscribers. So the work that you guys have done is just it's been unbelievable. I remember I remember when Cam and I first came to your first shot, right? The first time that we, we did this, it, it was uh, it kind of felt like you know, back then Matt was still making coffee and, and the desk was done. <laughs> now cake. Adam's making coffee. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, it was, yeah, we were sitting around the stool, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was unreal. And see how you guys have grown your user base. The quality of the content is really, really strong. So just hats off to you guys for sticking with that because it, it's a it's a challenge to get podcasts like this going and love that you guys just continue to kill it month after month. Appreciate it. And well, hey, it's always great having you guys in the studio and uh, yeah, well, hopefully anyway. back soon. Thanks, guys. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with Executive Director Cameron McNeil and President Ryan Lalonde over at MLA Canada. Yeah, really enjoyed having those guys uh, at Kokomo Studios. It's always great having them down. And I got to say, those guys are some of the best dressed in the, in the real estate business. We've moved, you know, after all this F45ing, we're moving to, you know, t-shirts. I might even do some tank tops this summer. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, still in the garbage bag. <laughs> until, I was going to say, this is all prefaced with until Ryan Lalonde walked in. <laughs> Immediately back in the garbage bag. That guy. Ryan Lalonde walks around. His his normal weight is Brad Pitt Fight Club. Yeah, that, literally. Yeah. That's who, I feel That's like we want to say lives. he looks like Bradley Cooper and, uh, but he's got, the, he's literally Brad Pitt fight club. That's well, at it. all moments of his life though. Like it, that's not like. <laughs> I he, feel like if Brad Pitt was here, he'd be like, damn, Ryan, what's going on? Brad like, Pitt crazy. has a poster of Ryan Lalonde on his wall. Uh, that's, uh, let's, let's just, that's his motivation. Uh, what else do we got before we cut for the week? What else do we have? First off, I had a discussion uh, with host Corey Wright on the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast last week about ghost kitchens. One of the more interesting conversations I've had in a very long time. Is this like, <laughs> I feel like this is my house before I renovated it. Yeah, I had exactly. a ghost kitchen. <laughs> yeah, you definitely had a ghost toilet in yeah, your kitchen. Exactly. <laughs> if you don't know much about ghost kitchens, this has just exploded. And there seems like there's so much opportunity, but some pretty big players moving in into the space. But the guest really unpacks it. And man, it doing God's work. It's allowing small scale people that want to start restaurants to do so with very minimal capital, right. which is exciting. And also providing spaces for like the Earls, the Joeys to actually move into new areas, but also have like kitchens that are offsite and uh, providing takeout. So it's did a they, whole Did they go world. through the numbers? Well, you should really go listen to it because Amrit 
Maharaj right. uh, from Coho Collective is on. Immigrant story himself, providing part of the goal was to provide kitchens for newer immigrants to Canada to actually start restaurants. And they started their first, they opened in March 2020. Wow. So, yeah, like timed COVID. Uh, it, was, it was crazy. Now they have like, Aquilini backing them. It's they're moving across the country. It's it's really a really really inspiring story, but a but really great great stories to listen to. So so tune into that. And what else do we have, Adam? I guess we have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Absolutely. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for all things real estate related. We have things like the Live Wire. This is our weekly newsletter with stats before anyone else. And this is a good time to pay attention to stats. VIP presale access to residential and commercial projects, deal of the month, and so much more. We also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. You can go sign up for your free account at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com slash PCS. And what else do we got? Before we cut for the day, I guess that's uh, that's pretty much it. I guess that's a wrap. Um, we've also got, uh, just quickly though, we've also got Kit Sauter coming oh, up yeah. in, uh, I, I think in the next couple of weeks, who's an advocate for the Broadway plan, talking about the Broadway plan. This, is, this debate is raging. I feel like you're either, this is all you hear about or you don't hear about or it Or you're at not all. on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. But the Broadway plan along the SkyTrain five five deep in terms of this density plan yeah it's not just broadway we're going five streets back man the debate rages and kit is a very aggressive advocate so it's going to be exciting to have him on fantastic i can't wait for that and uh yeah and matt how can people get in touch you can get in touch at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that Kokomo line, info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We'll have a great week, guys. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Take care. 2,000 faces for radio. Subscribe today. 